0: Welcome to episode 10 of Two Please. I'm your host, Arvind.
1: And I'm your co host, Rohit.
0: And on today's episode, we take a look at probably one of the more influential films to have come out of the 2010s. Directed by David Fincher and written by Adam Sorkin, this hit centered around two Harvard boys and a little company they co founded all the way back in 2003. But as they say, you don't get to 500 million friends without making a few enemies. This is The Social Network. The Social Network released worldwide on the 12th of November 2010 to critical and box office acclaim. It, however, infamously lost the Best Picture Oscar that year to The King's Speech and for a large part of the year was overshadowed
1: by other properties such as Inception. So yeah, 2010 was definitely a great year for movies, but to me personally, I had actually forgotten the fact that Social Network was a movie from that year. Because to me, that time largely was on the critical and say the the Oscar side of things. There was the King's Speech, which was winning all of the accolades and was a critical darling. And on the other side, there was Inception, which was Inception. Like it was a Nolan property, right? So yeah. you hear about it everywhere. You see it everywhere. And it had kind of dominated mind space, the airwaves, call it what you may. So uh, in fact, the other thing being that um, I had watched Social Network around the time it had released, which was, I I think probably watched it in 2011 and I hadn't rewatched it again since. In fact, only a couple of days ago in preparation for this episode, I decided to go through it again and it struck me so strongly how flawless the movie is and it's, it's amazing. Everything comes together perfectly and all I could tell myself was how have I not watched this again and again before? Like, what was I waiting for? And why do I not remember this as a standout movie of that year? But things as they came together in that year, it just so happened. At least for me, the zeitgeist was dominated by two other movies equally good. I would not degrade one for the other, but uh, I have a renewed appreciation for the social network. I think uh, with regards to the social network, it's possibly
0: a perfect cocktail of a lot of talents coming together. And it just so happens that all these talents are at the top of their game. You could argue that Alan Sorkin's writing was better in Steve Jobs, but when The Social Network came out, it was largely lauded for its watertight script. And everyone knows just how much of a perfectionist David Fincher is. Just ask Ben Affleck and his Metzcap situation in Gone Girl. The, the actors in the film, barring, I think, Max Minghella, who is problematically cast as Devin a, a very brown dude, are all at the top of their game. They're all delivering exceptional performances, specifically the lead to Jesse Eisenberg and Andrew Garfield. Special mention to Army Hammer. He's a bit of a weirdo, but
1: back then we, we didn't really know. And Actual cannibal Army Hammer. For <laughs> so those of you who don't know what that is a reference to, just go to YouTube and search for Shia LaBeouf uh, Rob Cantor, R-O-B-C-A-N-D-O-R. Watch the live version and you can thank us later. It's really beautiful. I mean, it's just one of those
0: exceptional pieces of media that just exist for no rhyme or reason. There's a lot of money, (laughs) a lot of money has been put into making that happen. There's a lot of people coming together to make that happen for no apparent reason. It was just Rob Cantor decided to put this random tribute act to Shia LaBeouf and... Realized in terrifying
1: fashion by Army Hammer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, Army Hammer and Josh Pence, who I feel really bad for because... He was initially cast as the second Winklevoss brother. And then three days into shooting, David Fincher comes up to them and tells them, we're going to have to do this entirely digitally and we're going with Ami. So Ami like talks about how he could feel Josh Pence just retract because that was a pretty big blow. But then he, he dusted himself down and got, just got on with it. So you watched The Social Network after, what, a gap of nearly 10 years. How do you feel about it today? And
1: if you did, and you mentioned that you really liked it. What did you like about it the most? There's definitely more than one thing. The first thing that comes to mind is how the movie is has not aged at all. It is, If it were a movie made in 2020 or 2015, I think it would 90% be the same movie. There's nothing that dates the movie or tells you it's from 10 or 11 years ago. Secondly, like you said, it's a very tight movie that kind of sticks together really well. And I feel it's because of the coming together of three masters. One is Aaron Sorkin the other being Fincher and the third being Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Obviously, we'll we'll get into each of them in, in more detail. Like I said, it the movie flows seamlessly from scene to scene or from situation to situation. And like any good Fincher movie, it draws you in without you even knowing it. And yet, despite all that, it didn't win Best Picture that year. Best Picture went to the King's Speech and uh, which maybe was not entirely unexpected. Looking back, I just feel... That's one of the many missteps the Oscars took in those years. I really liked The King's Speech. It was one of my favourite movies that year. But in terms of having a
0: legacy, I don't think it's had the same run as The Social Network has. And thanks to no fault of its own, because The Social Network, as riveting a watch as it is, is definitely
1: complemented by Facebook's rise in the last 10 years. While the monarchy has not gotten any more popular in the last 10 years. There
0: have been several articles on the internet calling the social network a super origin story after recent events. So there's a really funny story behind the King's Speech in the social network, a rather personal story. And it came up very recently because I was talking to a friend about uh, us doing the social network on the podcast. And he mentioned that 10 years ago, the three of us had gone for an Oscar quiz hosted by a prominent film critic, Rajiv Masand, And that's when he asked the audience who they think would win best picture. And there were several answers that went around, but the friend I had uh, was sitting next to was the only one to say the king's speech is going to win to which Masan kind of scoffed at him and said, "Probably not, it's too long," and then proceeded to ignore us for the rest of the quiz for some reason or the other and then once the king's speech did end up winning best picture, I got a text message from this friend going, "Fuck you, Raji Masan." <laughs> <laughs> The, the the friend we have and he'll, he will be on the podcast in a couple of weeks he's a big fan of both films and he favours probably Tom Hooper's The King's Speech more than he does David Fincher's The Social Network because that's just the kind of film he's attracted
1: to that's just the kind of person he is he yeah. belongs to a different era <laughs> he's from a better time yeah he's like
0: Marianne Courtyard in Midnight in Paris yeah he is <laughs>
1: And for this episode, what we're going to do, given the meticulous nature of David Fincher and his movies, we've kind of decided to break it into five sections. We're going to have, we're going to talk about the screenplay of Aaron Sorkin. We're going to talk about the direction of David Fincher. We're going to talk about the actors, what they've been up to since, and even the characters that they played. We're obviously going to talk about the music by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. And lastly, we're going to talk about the aftermath, how the movie impacted the cultural zeitgeist at large, and obviously, more importantly, the startup world. And we're also going to talk about what Facebook is today. I mean, that is something that definitely needs to be addressed. While there will be some overlap between these sections, because at the end of the day, we're talking about the same movie. We're just trying to, you know, be a little compartmentalized and be a little nitpicky, just like Venture is. Talking about the screenplay by Aaron Sorkin, this movie has a lot of the usuals that you would expect from a Sorkin screenplay. His characters have the typical fast paced dialogue and the back and forth, the wittiness and you know the the sharp dialogue back and forth and obviously there's the, the trademark walk and talk which is a feature you see probably used most often in the West Wing but is again a staple in a lot of Sorkin screenplays you see a lot of that in the movie and uh, again something that you generally see in his movies his characters are a bit of insufferable know-it-alls it's it, it's not it's not hard to dislike them but in this case obviously because you're in Harvard and the people that the movie is about did go on to become at least financially successful so in this case probably being a know-it-all works I mean the movie pulls it off mm-hmm also, like you said, he is a master of what I would call a closed circle screenplay, in that yeah. there's little to any open loops and everything is addressed, everything is resolved. There is no extra fat on the screenplay, if get what I mean. It's mm-hmm. leaning down to the core of what the story needs to be. And it just makes the entire movie feel so well oiled.
0: When Sokin was first tasked with putting together a script for the social network, he pictured it as a courtroom drama because what Sorkin really excels at is the element of human confrontation. This is partly due to his background in theatre, but a lot of the dialogue he writes are, are, tend to be long-winded monologues that are exchanged mm. between two characters. The social network is probably the least Sorkin in that aspect, by which I mean there are plenty of cuts between dialogues, but the dialogues still hold as much weight as those long-winded monologues do.
1: Yeah, you right. That's something even I have observed. I have not seen any other screenplay writer whose just two characters having a dialogue is as engrossing as it probably is in a Sorkin movie.
0: Mm-hmm. So the mandate was that the script shouldn't have been more than 150 plus pages. But Fincher decided against it and that's why you hear dialogue in the opening credits. This film has dialogue delivered at a very quick pace because Sorkin wanted to compress the film into a short running time while also engaging the audience in the process. So it opens up in a bar, and it opens up in a university bar. Mark is having a conversation with his girlfriend, Erica, which then escalates all of a sudden to a point where she ends up breaking up with him. A little sad and slightly inebriated, he heads back to his dorm and creates a program that compares girls between different schools in the same university. The program goes viral and also lands him in a fair bit of trouble. Impressed by his exploits, the Winklevoss twins approach him to build a social networking site for harvard.edu in a bid to create a network that makes them the most exclusive university in the world. Zuckerberg takes the idea, in essence, goes and meets up with his friend Eduardo Saverin, played wonderfully by Andrew Garfield, and they decide to come up with a social network by themselves. They call it the Facebook. That forms the basic premise of this film, after which the Winklevoss twins rightfully get pissed. They consider filing legal action against him. The relationship between Saverin and Zuckerberg also starts to deteriorate, more so with the arrival of Sean Parker, Played really well by Justin Timberlake, I may add.
1: Probably his career best performance. Not a high bar, admittedly, but yeah.
0: Yeah, he's really good. And the funny thing was, Justin Timberlake was one of the few artists that sued Sean Parker for creating (laughs) 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 Napster.
1: Or in the the words of Justin Timberlake, what goes around comes around.
0: Eventually, Eduardo Savin is removed from the company and thus begins a legal battle that is... Travelling throughout the film, the, the film cuts between c- the courtroom drama as well as things taking place in the past.
1: I think the back and forth jumps in time and all of the flashbacks are an expression of the fact that those are the kind of stories that Fincher loves to tell and here I think you can see how Sorkin's screenplay is only enriched by Fincher's approach to filmmaking and I think this is also as good a segue as we'll get into talking about the director next, which would be our next section.
0: Before we do, I want to highlight the social networks rewatchability factor. It is a film I have religiously watched at least twice a year since it came out. And each time, it remains as fresh as the first time I saw it.
1: With that, I think, let's move on to our next section, which is on David Fincher, the director. While a lot of the great directors have a very trademark style of filmmaking, for example, you can tell when you're watching a Tarantino movie or even a Nolan movie or especially a Sanderson movie. Fincher doesn't necessarily have a trademark visual style at least something that jumps out as obviously as say the directors have mentioned but there's something very surreptitious that Fincher does which kind of reels you in as a viewer without you even realizing it and I was trying to understand how he does it and in the process, I had come across them years back, but these are some of my favorite videos to watch, which I still go back to every now and then. You guys should, if anyone's really interested in cinematography and how the different aspects of filmmaking come together, there are two channels on YouTube that I highly recommend. One is uh, Every Frame a Painting, and the other one being Nerd Writer. Both of them have uh, an episode they've done on Fincher and how he uses techniques or especially The movement and behavior of the camera as a frame of reference to really enhance the movie watching experience one thing that they really uh, pointed out to me which i subconsciously had kind of hooked onto but never noticed is that Pincher is extremely meticulous or extremely exact about how the camera tracks his character's movement those that are being framed and even slight body movements such as maybe a tilt of the head or even a movement of the eye to whatever extent it makes sense you can see once you start observing these these things you see it a lot more clearly if a character is moving if, if the character is walking the camera follows him or her almost exactly with the undulations of their body language it's stuff like this right like David Fincher's not really looking to be noticed. He's trying to do what's best for the movie and what's best for the movie watching experience. And I mean, it's just great to watch a genius at work that doesn't want the world to know no, he's a genius. He's not shouting his name out. He just is putting the best work out there, which is a joy to watch.
0: I think the nerd writer video you're referring to is how David Fincher hijacks your eyes, right?
1: That's, yes, the title. Yes. that's the
0: title of the video I've seen two, so obviously, I mean three now that you mentioned every frame of painting it is a tragedy that Tony gave up the channel to go pursue filmmaking mm. completely because he was so good, it was such great content so adding to the videos that you did mention so Captain Christian is another guy a little known YouTuber very good, more little on the a bit on the down low he also has a video where he talks about very similar themes with regards to David Fincher films i coming to the social network There are plenty of ways this film could have been done. A little-known film called Pirates of Silicon Valley was out a couple of years ago, which talks about the Bill Gates, Steve Jobs struggle. It's a fun movie. It's not great. It still has rewatchability factors attached to it, but it's not the social network. I think Fincher brings with him a sense of style. There's almost a razor sharp edge to the film in terms of everything it does, in terms of its dialogue, in terms of its direction, in terms of its cinematography. It is the closest to perfection a film based on that
1: subject could possibly get. I think I agree with you 100%. Like I said, as with the screenplay, so with the direction, there's nothing extra. And I think that's something when we speak about the music, is again, I'm sure, I'm sure you'll agree, is something we see. There is absolutely not an extra frame, not an extra line, not an extra note. The movie is exactly what it needs to be, not a beat more or less.
0: He chooses to soak the film in sepia colours which really is a great addition to the film.
1: When the cinematographer was asked why they had this green-yellow tinge throughout the movie, his response was because the movie was primarily set in Harvard which is mostly old paneled wood and stone. When they were shooting it, he naturally felt that sort of colour emanate from the set and they decided to only slightly Mm -hmm. enhance that Uh, to, you know, only strengthen that feeling that we get watching the movie, that whole green-yellow tinge that you're talking about. And I think it does wonders for the watchability as well because, I don't know, to me at least it's it's very easy on the eyes, it's very aesthetic. And again, I wouldn't say it de-ages the movie, more like it unages the movie. The movie could belong to any time. And I think that whole look of it has a big part to play in it.
0: Funnily enough, they weren't allowed to shoot in Harvard because they had a really bad experience with Love Story back in 1970. Another thing this film does really well is its extensive use of CGI. There's a, actually a lot of CGI in this movie. Some of it to do with Army Hammer's double and for a long period of time I was convinced that there were two of them when in fact it was just him with the digital recapture.
1: In fact, I remember having my mind blown when I looked up Army Hammer's Wikipedia article and throughout the article I'm like why are they not talking about his twin I also want to know his twin's name and upon realizing there was no twin I mean I questioned a lot of things that day
0: As a matter of fact not many would even have known that the, that the Yacht race just before the Winkle White decided to sue Mark Zuckerberg is almost entirely CG except for the close-ups So Fincher's preferential use for CG is always to enhance films as opposed to it becoming the overall encompassing factor with a lot of films specifically with the likes of Michael Bay who we definitely are talking about in future episodes but yeah I think we should um, move on to performances
1: yes yes we should
0: so in terms of performances possibly Jesse Eisenberg's best performance in a long time
1: I think this was more the best suited role for Jesse Eisenberg than probably his best performance because little did we know at that time that that's pretty much all Eisenberg does be him playing Mark Zuckerberg or Lex Luthor
0: there's a there's a Norman legend that this is the true Lex Luthor film <laughs> <laughs> Eisenberg is excellent in this film so is Andrew Garfield so I wouldn't really say Eisenberg was an unknown entity at this time he did have the two land films the zombie land and adventure land Andrew Garfield was just getting into his career and this was possibly his big breakout in the early 2010s he ended up signing the two Amazing Spider-Man movies afterwards, which were anything but amazing. And his career has taken an interesting trajectory since.
1: I just, I don't know. Andrew Garfield seems to be such a nice guy. I just wish he had a better, or he deserves a better career. I want to see him in more movies. And like you said, right? Great performance from him. And more importantly, for me, the interaction between Mark and Eduardo Severin's characters in the flashbacks, The way Eduardo is such a good friend to Mark, and despite Mark being whatever asshole he is in the movie, there are moments in the movie where you see him also reciprocating this. Which, again, really sweet moments which make it that much harder to see the betrayal play out and to see Savarin react the way he does. But a great dynamic, I think, between the two leads.
0: You can see Savarin start to make mistakes in the film. You can see his insecurities get the better of him. Jealousy plays a big part, especially with the arrival of Sean Parker. Savant starts to feel sidelined to a point where he freezes an account that the company owns. His relationship with... His rather dysfunctional relationship with Zuckerberg at the start, it really tends to spiral as the film progresses. And it's almost heartbreaking to see that in the court scenes, you could see the Savant doesn't really want to do any of this, but he has to because he's just so hurt and so betrayed by someone he considered to be his best friend. He also props to Justin Timberlake because... He brings a very likeable, yet a very snide side to his portrayal. As the audience, you can't help but feel that there's something wrong with this guy, no matter how pleasant and how welcoming he is.
1: Yeah, you're right. There is that undercurrent of menace despite the extremely affable and charming exterior. To me, in fact, maybe because I know who Sean Parker is even before they had watched the movie. Justin Timberlake subconsciously also seemed to emanate that that douche energy that uh, I would have expected from Sean Parker. So, in many ways, I think a very layered and a very impactful performance by by him.
0: One of my favorite moments in the film is in the climax where Eduardo, in a fit of anger, breaks Mark's laptop, and then proceeds to go on this tirade which he ends with You better
1: lawyer up, asshole because I'm not coming back for 30% I'm coming back for everything Yeah, at that point you're rooting hard for him and I think rightfully so because with the passing years obviously I don't even know what Eduardo Severin has been up to but I think I can safely say he enjoys a much better reputation than Mark Zuckerberg does today. So with that let's get to the section that I am looking forward to most, which is the music by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. I think I think the biggest service this movie did to the film industry is the fact that it brought together Reznor and Ross. This is the first time they collaborated on a movie score while they had individually given music for movies earlier. The work they've done since speaks for itself, but in their own way, they're in a league of their own. There are several ways
0: you could have scored this film. But that ambient electronica sound that they employ for most of the film's running time just enhances everything about this film. Handcover's bruise is not an extremely complex piece of music. In fact, it's fairly simple.
1: An interesting thing about Handcover's bruise that I read was I think the musical piece appears thrice in the movie and each time Reznor decided to record his piano from a little further away to kind of bring in an increased sense of isolation each time. And like you said, right, it's similar to Fincher's direction in the sense that the score is not trying to be noticed. Again, nothing against, I'm going to sound really sacrilegious here, but if I were to say pick the Schindler's List score, amazing music, some of the best movie score work of all time, but it wants to be a part of the movie which which stands out, which is noticeable. The soundtrack has leitmotifs for the characters. There's nothing wrong about it. It, In certain movies, used correctly, definitely adds to the experience. But score here, it's what the scene needs. It's not them trying to say, hey, this is what we can do. It's more, this is what the scene needs for it to elevate itself a level higher and for you to enjoy it all that much more. Two examples from the social network that really stood out to me I'm sure there are many many more. One was the scene where uh, Zuckerberg's kind of monologuing to us to his blog while he's setting up Facemash. The entire background score kind of has this sense of dynamism, urgency which the character on screen is also exhibiting. Knowingly unknowingly it, it evokes that same kind of feeling in you. An even better example is when Mark, Eduardo and Eduardo's girlfriend Christy meet Sean Parker for the first time in New York. The whole montage where you see Parker kind of wowing them with life in Silicon Valley and the stuff he's done in life. The music is, I mean, it is amazing in its own right, but it just adds so, so much more uh, to that scene to kind of instantly at, at a certain level, at least for me, I when I was watching that scene and listening to the music, I was just like, wow, Sean Parker is so cool. That's the feeling it wants the audience to feel and music again adds so much to that. The only other composer that I feel approaches score in a similar way in that he's not trying to stand out but add to it is uh, Paul Leonard Morgan. Especially in Dread. I don't know if you've if you've paid attention to the soundtrack for Dread, the twenty twelve Carl Urban movie.
0: Oh yeah. Also Dread, a very underrated film, deserves a sequel, or I'm perfectly fine with it being the standalone film that it is. The Social Network has a very strong legacy thanks to two factors, the first being it is a great film, it deserves its legacy entirely, two, Facebook clearly has been doing some things over the last 10 years that have kept it in the public space for an extended period of time.
1: Yeah, in fact if the movie were to be made today I think the tagline would read something more like uh, You don't get to a billion friends without inciting a few genocides. God. <laughs> and yes, uh, we are still going to put clips up of this episode on Instagram so that we can spread the word. And if you feel we're being hypocrites, that's just the way the world works. Deal with it.
0: Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, so Zuckerberg really hasn't covered himself in glory. There have been plenty of cases and incidents where Facebook has been accused of selling private data to to companies. The whole Cambridge Analytica fiasco of 2014 was also a damning factor in why people aren't so considered on Facebook these days. In previous episodes, we've always spoken about nostalgia, and there have been a fair few people who have longed for the days of MySpace a totally non-problematic social networking site that came and died, that existed to serve only one purpose, promote music through your profiles.
1: I think I haven't been on social media for the last four years now and nothing that I have seen makes me feel I took the wrong decision.
0: Trust me, you're not missing out on anything, especially the way things are (laughs) going. So Aaron Sorkin has widely discussed making a sequel to the film. There have been several people who've also wanted to do the same. At one point, I think Fincher was also attracted to it, but I think since he has given up the ghost on that. But even if they don't make a sequel, I think The Social Network still stands as one of the greatest films to come out in the last 10 to 15 years. The Social Network joins a very elite list of should-haves, like the likes of Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, as films that should have won the best picture. But I don't think not having one best picture will dent its status or its legacy at any point in time. It is and it remains one of my favorite films of all time.
1: If it were not for social network and the subsequent interest it sparked in the whole startup culture in in Silicon Valley. A lot of the story of what Silicon Valley is about would not even have existed, right? You don't have somebody like a Richard or a Gilfoyle if it wasn't every Tom, Dick, and Harry who wanted to head off to the West and start their own thing after uh, getting inspired by the story of Facebook. Obviously, in terms of the economic or the financial legacy of this movie, it extends far beyond just what business it has done in the box offices. If not for anything else, it is for these reasons that the social network will always remain in the cultural side zeitgeist.
0: Go watch the social network. If you haven't already, go watch it. If you have, watch it again. For those of us still stuck in lockdown, this is a great escape into a great film that makes you think, that makes you feel and that is overall an excellent time. I would recommend it a hundred times over to anybody and everybody I've, I've ever met.
1: And I think having watched it a second time just a couple of days ago, I would wholeheartedly agree with you. Because of, like I said, these three geniuses coming together, while the movie may not have had the impact that other movies did that year in theatres, definitely something that will stay with you a lot lot longer
0: and that should be that we'll join you on next week's episode and until then take care